Lord, that you would use your word today to heal, to transform, to accomplish what it's supposed to do, to make us more like you. And Lord, I thank you for your word. It is the rock, the strength, the source of our life. I thank you for your presence, Lord. I pray that it would move today, move today by your power. In Jesus' name, we all say amen. Give the Lord a hand this morning. Thank you. Give the worship team a hand as they go down. Yes, thank you. Hallelujah. Why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to finish up the chapter. We did half of it. Um, Last Sunday, we're going to do the last part of it today. I want to remind all the connectors that we have a meeting immediately right after the service. And it is, I, I absolutely really hate to use the word mandatory, but yeah, it's mandatory. Um, every connector, we need you here right after the service. Genesis chapter 14. Verse 17, you all have it? You can find it. It's the first book in the Bible. Okay? First book in the Bible. And we're, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, we've been going through the book of Genesis from chapter 1 all the way through. So we're here, chapter 14. And it reads like this. After Abram returned from his victory over Ketolaomer, and all his allies, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. He said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you can keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Go ahead and have a seat. From the beginning of the chapter that we started last week, we read about the war that happened. We had four kings who fought against five kings. And it all happened because Lot decided to pitch his tent towards Sodom. He decided to look at what the world had to offer. He looked at all the good stuff, and he said, that's what I want. And he not only began to pitch his tent, but then the next thing we find out is that he's living in Sodom. So when these kings decided to go to war, they came and they totally took everything that was in Sodom, including Lot and including everything that he had had. They, they took all his stuff. 
And Abram, who had such a great love for his nephew, said, I can't leave my nephew out there in captivity. So he got 318 of his ranch hands. They got every pick, every hoe, every, everything that you know ranchers use, and they went out to battle. And God gave them victory. They defeated the armies, the armies, five armies of kingdoms. And they came back with not only Lot, all the people that were stolen, and all their stuff. So when Abram came back, and this is where we come to this part of the story. When Abram, Abram comes back, he comes back to something similar to like a ticker tape parade in, in New York City. You ever seen those ticker tape parades where it's like, yeah, they're riding in a car and everybody's all excited to see him. And that's kind of what it was like when Abram came back because he came back victorious. He came back with all the stuff that had been stolen. He came back with everything. And so when he comes back, you have two kings who go out there to meet him. Two kings, king of Salem and king of Sodom. And I don't think that there's any test that any man or woman faces that is greater than the test of success. When you've been successful, you will be tested. When you make it, when you're up there, you're going to be tested. And that's exactly what happened to Abram. This was his greatest victory that everybody could now see. Everybody saw, man, who is this guy? How did he defeat those five armies with just 318 men? And they're not even soldiers. They're not even trained. They're ranch hands. They take care of sheep. They take care of cows. And they defeated five armies. And all of a sudden, wow, Abram's name is, wow, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what Abram did? Did you hear what he did, how he did it? Proverbs 27, 21 says that fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested when they are praised. That's according to the word of God. My husband used to have a saying that the human animal is the only animal that you pat on the back and their head swells. No other animal. You can pat a dog, a cat. They're fine. But a human? And this is exactly what happened with Abram. The king of Salem and the king of Sodom, they both went out there to greet Abram, but they both had different reasons to greet him. It was God's divine plan that the king of Salem greet Abram before the king of Sodom. It was very, very important because this king, Melchizedek, is a very important and crucial figure because it helped put Abram's victory into perspective. We always need those kind of people that help us to see things the way they're supposed to be seen. Sometimes we have visions of grandeur. We see things way out of proportion, and somebody comes and like, get it together here. It ain't all, you ain't all that. You ain't all that. And that's what Melchizedek did to Abram. He was a king and he was a priest. And his words reminded Abram that the victory was God's. God brought him the victory. He didn't do it on his own. 
He said, God gave you the defeat. God gave you the success. Don't let it get to your head, Abram. Don't, don't think you're that great. Because without God, you're nothing. And he reminded him that his success was a result of God's blessing. So what Melchizedek did is that he reminded Abram of the covenant that God had made with him way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he told him, leave your country, get out of Ur, leave your relatives, your father's family, and go to a land that I'm going to show you, and there I will make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others, and I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So he had that covenant, but it wasn't time yet. Sometimes we get a promise and we think, okay, it's time. This is it. I'm going to be famous. Not time yet. And Melchizedek came and set him straight. Uh-uh. God did this for you. You didn't do it. You're, it's not your time to be famous yet. Not your time. And so Melchizedek came and he set him straight and kept him from taking his success too seriously. And you know what? You really need to thank God for those men and women. You know, some of spouses, that's what you're there for. I know my, uh, uh, there was a joke that my husband and I, we had a standing joke. And, and there was a pastor who, who was driving home. And man, he just preached a powerful message. I mean, souls came. People were crying. You know, they were Kleenex everywhere, and he was all excited, like, man, you know, I'm the man. So he gets in the car, and him and his wife are driving home, and, and he's like, he's feeling good about himself. He's feeling like, ah, I got it. And he's saying, I wonder how many great preachers there really are in this world. And his wife says, I really don't know, but less than you think. Because he was thinking he was up there. And his wife just popped his bubble very quickly. <laughs> Melchizedek is a priest, a king, who is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. Some have suggested, some theologians have suggested that he was the Lord Jesus reincarnate at this particular time. Others have thought that he was Shem, Noah's son, who was still possibly alive at that time. We don't know anything about him. We just know that he didn't have a beginning and he didn't have an end. Matter of fact, if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, this Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. We're not really told who Melchizedek is, but we, we are told how significant and how important he was in this time. Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 1, those of you who can follow along with me, it says, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem. Now let me tell you what Salem is. Salem was a shortened word for Jerusalem. So that's where he was king of. He was king of Jerusalem, not, Sal not Salem, but Jerusalem. And he was also a priest of God Most High. When Abram was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abram took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. 
The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abram, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect the tithes from the rest of the people of Israel. But Melchizedek, who wasn't a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And it says that Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. Melchizedek is important. He was a high priest. He was a king. And the importance of what he, uh, what he uh, typified was that what he came to meet Abram with after battle was some bread and wine. That's what the Bible says that he came to meet him with, which is what we have here today. We're celebrating communion. He brought him the symbol of a body and blood of Christ. And that's why they say that he was possibly Jesus. Now, there's a lot of other uh, theologians who have said that Jesus appeared in the Old Testament before he was born in the New Testament. And talk to Lenny about that. He'll give you all that. But what is important is that of all the things that he could have brought, he brought two symbols. And those symbols represented his body and blood, where Abraham was looking forward to Jesus coming we celebrate using bread and grape juice looking back to when he died. The body and the blood of Christ is so important for you to understand. It is what makes us different than everybody else. We celebrate communion. We celebrate Christ's body that was broken for you and I. We celebrate the fact that he died. He took our sins upon his back. We don't have to live like we used to live because he died that we might have life. He died that we could have health. He died that we could have a future. And that's what Abram was looking toward. And we look back. Abram was in that type of worship of eating bread and drinking the wine. In that type of worship that he said, I got to give you 10% of what I got. Whatever I got. Melchizedek, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you 10%. <clears throat> Abram reminds us that in the matter of giving, the most important part of giving is worship. It's worship. Some of you are like, when the offering time comes, you're like, eh, turn this off. I ain't, you know, I, I tip God. Uh, you know what? I like the worship. Yeah, I'll give him a dollar, two dollars. These are not the people that you need to be giving to. He's the one you need to give to. He's the one that is in worship here, not anybody else. And if we give to receive any kind of glory, then we really don't get any benefit. Abram was in worship, and it was through that worshipful attitude that he separated 10% to give to Melchizedek. You know, when we don't want to do something, we do our best to find out how we can get out of it. Don't we? 
That's just in our nature. I mean, I think teenagers are the best. You tell them they got to do something, they'll figure out a way on how to get out of it. We have some adults who still have that little teenager attitude. They'll do anything they can to get out of it. They look for loopholes. They look for something in there, you know, just trying to get out of it. And there are those, even in this room, that you really don't like to give. You just don't. And for those people, their excuse is, well, they were in the Old Testament. They were under the law, and they were commanded to tithe. We're not commanded to tithe. And to those of you who have used that excuse or loophole, I would tell you, first of all, number one, Abraham wasn't under the law because the law had not yet been established. And he gave his 10%. There was nobody telling him he had to. Nobody telling him this is the law. He did it. In fact, he was the first, but he wasn't the only one. His son Jacob, in, uh, later on in Genesis, he also gave 10%, but the law wasn't established yet. And those are all for the people who look for loopholes. Because we, we've had a few. Not a lot, but a few saying, you know what the law says, and we're not under the law. <clears throat> so Abram tithed before the law was even given. Why did Abraham tithe before he was commanded to tithe? Because he recognized that Melchizedek represented God. He represented that he needed to worship him. So out of love and out of a gratitude, he expressed his faith in God by giving. The law, which came in, in effect in Leviticus, commanded people, you have to tithe. And the people today say that it was because of the law that we don't tithe today. No, we still tithe because it's out of love and gratitude. That's all it is. It's love and gratitude. Now, I want to challenge you, those of you who have this Old Testament law in place, you found that loophole? Tell me one place in the New Testament where Jesus lowered the standard because we're under grace. One scripture that says you don't have to abide because you're under grace. You're not going to find it because, in fact, grace even raises the bar even higher. Because see, the law said, do not commit adultery. That's what the law said. That was the law. Do not commit adultery. And Jesus raised the bar under grace. He said, if you even think about it, you've already committed it. Just thinking about it. That's, that bar is raised a whole lot higher now. Now, before, the law said you had to commit the act. Now, Jesus says, no, you don't got to commit the act. Just think. You've done it. He doesn't force us to give, but he wants us to express our heart through love and faith. Now, Abram had this great meeting with the high priest. And at the same time, he had a meeting with the king of Sodom. Right after the victory, the enemy came in. And that's how it is. Every time you have a victory, every time you win a spiritual battle, every time God sees you through, get ready, get ready, get ready. 
Because don't think that you're going to be able to get through a spiritual battle and the enemy not being waiting there right at the door and saying, oh, really? You think you got the victory? You think you're okay? And bam, right, at, right cross, left uppercut, out of nowhere, he hits you. And that's what happens most of the time when you take off on a retreat, a prayer retreat, a leader's retreat, you take off, I'm going to pray and fast, you come back, oh my gosh. Every time I left to a leadership retreat, it, it wouldn't fail. I mean, I, I knew that I knew that I knew I should have prepared myself. And every time I came back, I would walk in, and this would be when my husband would be watching the children for three, uh, three four, sometimes five days. I'd be gone to a leadership retreat and Rosarito come back, I knew everything that my children had done for the whole week because it was there. Everything that they had eaten, every clothes that they had worn, every candy wrapper that they had eaten, every cereal box, every bowl, every spoon was there. My husband's philosophy was, the children are alive, I have done my duty. So the enemy would come in. He would come in strong. It would be me. I would, I would be like a roaring lion. Like, what happened? But you need to understand something, that after every great victory, you need to be aware that there is danger. Danger, danger. You can count on it. You can plan for it. Even Jesus, <clears throat> right after he was baptized, I mean, what a victory. He was baptized. The skies opened up. God, his father, spoke. Everybody heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, my gosh, how much more of a victory can you get than having the skies open up and your father speaking to you from heaven? And right after that great victory, the spirit of God led him into the desert where he was tempted by the enemy, by Satan, for 40 days and 40 nights. After the great victory, then came the spiritual temptation. See, this temptation from the king of Sodom was real subtle. When you just read the word, you probably will miss it. You don't even realize that it is a temptation. The king of Sodom knew that whoever wins the battle, they get everything. They get all the spoils and they get all the people. They get everything. The fact that the king of Sodom even approached him to give me part of it was wrong. It was wrong. See, the king of Sodom had lost his whole city. All his people and all his stuff had been stolen. Now, now he looks and Lot's got it all. Lot's got all his people and he's got all his stuff. So he's thinking of himself. He's saying, how am I going to rebuild my city? How am I going to, you know, uh, do something? I don't have anything. So he approaches Abram, and, the, and it says in verse 21 that the king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you can keep for yourself all the goods that you have recovered. All the goods. See, the king of Sodom wanted the souls. He said, Abram, you can keep the spoils. You can keep all of that stuff. 
I want the souls. Give me the people. Abram had fought for the people and for the property, but now the king of Sodom wanted the people. And that's how the enemy tempts us. Exactly the same way we trade our souls in for spoils. The enemy wants the souls. He'll throw everything at you. He'll give you all of those computers and that big screen TV and that brand new car and that brand new house. And he'll give you all the material stuff you want as long as he's got your soul. That's all he wants. You can keep the spoils. I just want you. We trade in our souls for spoils. How many people are trapped by commitments even at this hour? They're trapped by working. They're working right now, forgetting that their souls need nourishment because they got to make a buck. They got to make ends meet. They got to be able to get their finances. People today who should be in full-time ministry, people today who should be on the mission field, but the spoils of the world have lured them away and tempted them. And so now they're pursuing their kingdom instead of God's. How many thoughts must have gone through Abram's mind when the king of Sodom said, you know what, keep the spoils, give me the people. Now Abram's words were probably even a bigger shock to the king of Sodom because he said, he tells the king this, he goes, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from what belongs to you. I'm not going to take a thread. I'm not going to take a shoe. I'm not going to take anyone because I don't want you to say that you made me rich. I don't want you, the world, to have any kind of a say in what God does in my life. The king of Sodom tried to give Abraham all the spoils of the battle. But Abram refused them all. He said he wouldn't take anything from him. Nothing. In another version it says, I'm not taking a dime from you. So you won't be able to say that you made me rich. Nothing. What about people who offer you worldly things? They offer you, you know, uh, there's a, a guys from the neighborhood they come by and open up their coat. Look at what I got, $5. You can have it, $5. And you know, you know that you know that you know that that stuff is hot. But it's $5. Man, what a great deal. What a great deal. What about those who turn to the world? Like playing lotto, or going to the casino, or maybe just online gambling. Nobody will know. Nobody will ever find out. And you want to justify your actions because I'm going to tithe when I win. I, I am. I really am. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to do it. If I win big, I've had people come up to me. I say, you know what, I just bought some lottery tickets, and if I win big, the church is going to be blessed. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Then I, I ask Rochelle, Rochelle, how is her tithing? 
they don't tithe. And if they don't tithe with $100, do I expect them to tithe with a million? I don't think so. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You want to be a person of faith? Then refuse to participate in anything that would make you rich so that the world would say, they didn't get blessed. The lotto made them rich. The casino made them rich. They're, you know, they, they got off by suing somebody. That's how they got rich. No, you get rich by God's blessings, not by the world, not by what it has to offer. You don't try to get rich that way. You know, I have a family member and, I, and I'm trying to explain this to my family because all my family is not saved. And I had a family member who, you know, sh they made a decision that they didn't want to have their house anymore. And they're like, no, nah, we're not going to have our house. I said, well, then what are you going to do? I said, well, we're they said, well, we're just going to live here until they kick us out. And I said, well, what do you mean live there until they kick you out? Yeah, well, we're just not going to pay rent. We're going to store up all that money. And then when they kick us out, then we got all this money. And I said, oh, really? Is that what you're going to do? I said, do you know what's going to happen to that money? You're going to have a pocket full of holes because you're not going to have anything to show for it because everything that you think you're going to have by saving up that money, something else is going to come and take it away. You cannot try to get rich because the world comes knocking at your door. But when God blesses you, that's, that's different. When God blesses, it's free and clear. No taxes, no levies, nobody knocking at your door. It is free and clear. But when the world blesses you or when you try to get rich through the world's ways and the world's manipulations, you'll pay the price. You will pay the price. Proverbs 28, 22 says, greedy people try to get rich quick but don't realize they're headed for poverty. That's where all of these pyramid schemes come in. Let's get rich quick. You put in 20, I'll put in 20. Let's get 20 from her. Come on. And then, okay, I'll get it. Then, well, you go get 20 from somebody else. And, and you go get 20 from somebody else. And we're always trying to think, how, you know, we come from the streets. You're trying to scheme on a schemer? That's what my husband used to tell guys from the home. You're trying to scheme a schemer? I'm way ahead of you. Been there, done that. We've got some guys who are better than all of you, and you think that you're real good. You ain't that good. You can't scheme a schemer. You can't con a con. You can try, but you really can't con a con. If I ever have to do anything, if I ever have anything in my life, and I mean anything, I want to be able to let the world know that I didn't get it getting, going to the world. I didn't get it by going to a lotto. I didn't get it by going to a casino. I didn't get it by trying to get rich quick. I got it by being blessed by God. I got it by waiting on God. I got it by being ready and willing and able to be able to say, all my favorite things, Lord, they're yours. And then he says, oh, really? Then he blesses back. But even if I never get anything, even if I never have anything, then I would rather live by faith in, in God than be rich and be with no peace. 
I would hate for the world to be able to come back at me and say, the world made you rich. The world made you rich. The world's not going to make me rich. Is it tempting? Oh, yeah. There's so many things out there that, you know, right now people are hurting, and they all want to get rich. They all want to put a fast buck in their, in their pocket. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know what works? Giving to God. It really does. Some of you are saying, oh, my God, there she goes again. That's all I can tell you. That's all I know. You, want, you really want to get rich? Give. It sounds so different, but God's kingdom is upside down. It's not the world's way. The world's way is rake it in. Come on, rake it in. God's way is give it away. Give it away. Some of you are saying, I don't know how I can do that. How can I give anything away? God says, trust me. Just trust me. Give, and it'll come back to you. What are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in your, in your job? That's pretty shaky. You're trusting in the finances that you got in your bank? That's pretty shaky. Or are you trusting in God? Are you really trusting in him? Are you reminding yourself of the promises that God has given you in the past? So this is the first example in the Old Testament of a giving of the tithe or 10% to the Lord. As I said, Abram wasn't required to do this. He did it because he wanted to express his thanks to God for giving him victory. He wanted to express his love for God that he gave his offering to the high priest Melchizedek. And eventually it did become a law. Eventually in Leviticus, the Israelites had to give 10% of everything to the Lord. Everything that was set aside, it couldn't be used for commonness. It needed to be used for God's work. And God blessed them. As long as the people were faithful in setting aside their crops, setting aside their herds, setting aside everything, God blessed them. But when they started to hoard, the blessing stopped. They just stopped. When we talk about a tithe or a tenth of our income, people always say, I can't do this. I, I just, I can't. It's just, it's too hard. It, it's difficult. If you only knew the bills that I have, if you only knew the bills that I had, I had. I have been working and chipping away. After my husband died, to be honest with you, I went a little crazy. Got some credit cards, because they were easy. My husband and I had some good credit, and now he's gone. And I got credit cards. And it was like, he's not there to tell me, stop. He's not there to tell me, you're going too much, too far. So I went a little overboard. Thank God, they're all gone. The only credit card I have is Home Depot. That's my favorite store. I love Home Depot. But there's something that goes with Home Depot because that's all to fix stuff. But was there a period of time that I didn't trust? Yeah. Because when crisis hits your life, you don't know how you're going to react. And I really didn't know how I was going to react. And I reacted by buying. I reacted by spending. And it kind of eased that pain in my life. But it didn't take it away. Because eventually, I had those bills knocking at my door. 
Eventually, I had to pay up. And I, I remember that I, I read this, this illustration, and it really made so much sense to me because there was a father and a son, and they were driving, and the son was saying, Daddy, I want some French fries. Daddy, I want some French fries. And, you know, the only kind of French fries kids like are McDonald's because those are the only ones with sugar. That's what they're addicted to. They're addicted to the sugar and the fries at McDonald's. And so he's like, I want fries, I want fries, I want fries. And finally the father says, all right, stop, we'll go. So they're driving through McDonald's. And he gets him his fries, and there his son is like eating them. He's so happy. Yum, yum. And the father's driving. And just absentmindedly, he goes over and he tries to get a fry. And the little boy hits his hand. Wham! And he's like, what? He goes, I just want a fry. He goes, no, they're mine. They're mine. And he goes, I just want one. He goes, they're mine. And he goes like this. And turns his back to his father. I'm wondering how many things has God given us that are just like that. Daddy, I want this. I want this. I want this. And God says, all right. Here. You could have it. And then he says, okay. Can I have a tithe of that? Can I have a, a portion of that? No, it's mine. Mine. You gave it to me. It's mine. And God is saying, man, I really should have thought twice. But he does it because he loves us. He does it because he wants to meet our needs. He does it because he wants to prove to you that he can meet all of your needs according to his riches. But can you trust him this morning? Can you believe that he is who he says he is? There was a, a guy who came up to a pastor. And he's telling his pastor, you know what? I can't do it. I can't tithe. It, it's, it's too hard. It's just too hard. And the pastor says, well, you know what? He goes, let's do this. He goes, for one month, I want you to tithe. And if it gets too hard, then come see me and I'll help you out. And he goes, really? Yeah, I'll help you out. Okay, now, if I can't, if I can't make my budget, you're going to be there to help me? Yeah, I'll be here. I'll help you out. Oh, okay, if you promise to be there, then I guess I'll tithe. And the pastor said, well, isn't that something? You would trust me with such a limited amount of income instead of trusting your father who owns the universe. And that's what we do. We trust in people. We trust in jobs. We trust in temporary things rather than trusting the creator of the universe. Today, that's our challenge. I asked Rochelle this morning. I asked her last night, but she gave it to me this morning. Of where we stand in our giving. And from 2007, from January to June, and 2008, January to June, we're... 
$22,171 different, lower, than we were last year. $22,000 difference, lower. So that means that, we're, that there's $22,000 that hasn't been trusted in your father. $22,000 that people have said, you know what, I can't do it this time. I just can't do it. The Bible talks about that money is your level of spirituality. It's your level. It's your faith level. It's your trust level. And for some of you, you're going to have to grow. You're going to have to grow. You're going to have to step out. You're going to have to believe God. Don't look at the numbers. Look at him. Don't look at your bills. Look at him. Toby and Bev are taking a, a big step. They're leaving what people would say a very comfortable position in life two secure jobs and they're leaving that to what go into the unknown they're taking a risk they're putting their trust and their faith in God is it tough oh I'm sure it is I mean you know you'll you'll hear them and there's an excitement but whoa there's there's a little bit of fear in there I know that just like you do but you're going to have to trust you cannot look at what the bills say or your numbers say, you got to look at him. Don't be like that little boy who says it's mine. Don't look, be like that man who says, okay, I'll trust you, a person, but not trust God. You got to trust him this morning. Stand with me. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I seriously want you to think about the things in your life, about your, your giving level. Abram told the king of Sodom, I'm not going to take anything from you. You can have it. I don't want any spoils. Nothing, nothing from the world. I don't want the world to ever point their finger at me and say, the world made me rich. I want to be blessed by God. And I know it's tough. I know it's tough. We're all going through some hard times. But it's not the economy that causes the people of God to be discouraged. It's our lack of faith. And you got to trust him in the hard times and in the good times. Or when things are going good, we have, oh, we're good. But when things are going hard, we're having a hard time making ends meet then that's when we want to hold on God's kingdom is upside down and if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal savior this is the beginning learning how to trust him learning how to have faith in him learning that he will be a rewarder if you seek him and if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, I want to give you an opportunity. I'd like to pray with you this morning. If you'd like to raise your hand, we'd like to pray. Anyone here, God bless you. God bless you. Amen.
for everyone else. I want you to seek deep down in your heart and say, where's my level of giving? Could I, like Abram, worship with my giving? Or is it hard? Is it really tough? Do I have a tendency to look more at my bills than I do at my faith? This is the day that Melchizedek came with the bread and the wine. And he caused Abram to worship. Giving is worship. It's worship. It's worship. It's worship. Worship means he's worthy. Is he worthy this morning? Can you do it? Can you stop with the get rich quick? Can you stop with the holding on and the hoarding and release and let God do what he wants to do? I guarantee it. God will meet your needs. And if you want prayer this morning and learning how to trust him, you want prayer this morning and learning how to grow your faith, then I want to pray with you this morning. I want to open up the altars for you to come. You are the reason for my joy. And you are the reason for my Try. 